0: Taking time to see you join us, and uh, again, a pleasure to see you all uh, this evening. Uh, I know uh, sometimes when we have somebody other than Roger or Jason preaching, you may think to yourself, uh, This might be a shorter sermon, uh, but if there's anybody more long-winded than a preacher, it's an academic. So uh, you may uh, not get that same uh, benefit tonight. Uh, I did want to start though tonight. Uh, if you have uh, gotten a chance to look at those outlines uh, that was mentioned earlier. Uh, We'll be going through that this evening, so I hope you'll follow along with me. Uh, You'll see that one of the first verses referenced there is uh, in Genesis, so we will begin in Genesis tonight, uh, but I will uh, be moving quite a a bit around, both New and Old Testament. As we look at a topic that I think is incredibly timely and important, myself at least, and I suspect many in this room, are surrounded right now, uh, at least in businesses and in other elements of society, uh, with a conversation a conversation that I'll be quite honest, I don't know that anybody knows exactly where it's headed uh, in terms of the future of this particular topic. It's a conversation on both sides where people are having a lot of optimism, uh, a lot of great things that may be happening in the near future, um, but also a lot of fear and concern as well. And I'm referencing the topic of artificial intelligence. You may have heard that term, you may have heard ideas tossed around about this uh, it's picked up recently in the last year uh, with new uh, tools uh, emerging, things like chat GPT. Those of you younger in the room may be more aware of some of these tools, but I assure you, regardless of your age tonight, you've already been impacted by artificial intelligence. We're gonna talk a little bit more about what exactly that is in a moment. But I will tell you, it wasn't the, the actual topic that I ended up settling on uh, to talk about tonight. Uh, it did inspire it, however. So as I have been immersed in this conversation uh, in academia for uh, really the last couple of years, uh, I started to wonder to myself, is this something that will eventually impact our lives as Christians, Uh, specifically our worship services, specifically how we uh, approach our worship? And, And of course, we follow the pattern set for us by the New Testament, and yet so much of our lives, things like live stream and other tools that are available to us, ultimately do shape to some degree how we approach our worship services and I was surprised when I first started researching this that there's already been quite a bit of conversation happening at least if you do uh, some searching and some looking and Roger and I talked a little bit about this this week uh, in terms of what is happening right now in the broader religious communities uh, around artificial intelligence I know some of these uh, headlines that I've just kind of grabbed up here are hard to read but I'll, I'll read a few of them to you uh, one of them here from the Atlantic. Uh, there's an article talk called "Is AI a Threat to Christianity?" Uh, and I believe the subheader there says, "Are you Are you there, God? It's me, robot." Um, and then a couple others here say, "AI can preach and sing, so why can't it worship God? Uh, can religion save us from artificial intelligence?" A- and the bottom one here. And I'll spoil the uh, the punchline, Roger and, and Jason and others. It says, will artificial intelligence replace preachers? And the conclusion of that article was at least no for now. Uh, and that many are certainly um, thinking and looking at this direction as artificial intelligence can write sermons. It can uh, create lesson plans. It can do a lot of things right now that can be a little overwhelming, a little fearful if we're not careful. But like many tools, I think it really comes down to how people use it, how we will ultimately use it going forward. Um, but this, this idea, these topics, these concerns that have been raised uh, prompted me to actually take one step back. And I think it's an important step back that we should all take before we, we really dive into that subject on a later date. And that is why do we have the intelligence that we have as humans? What is God's design for our minds? And, and that's where we ended up on this topic tonight. And that's how we landed on on this subject that I think is is really important for us to go through the Bible uh, and spend a few minutes looking at uh, passages that really tell us why God gave us the the intellectual tools that he did, the brain that he gave us, and the minds that each of us have. I'll tell you up front, and I'll I'll remind you at the end of this as well, uh, this is not a topic that is uh, limited in age. In fact, uh, I'm sure some of you may be here tonight saying, well, I'm a bit older and, I, and my learning days are behind, my school days at least are behind me. And that, that may be the case, um, but I could assure you, and we'll we'll go through tonight and see a, a variety of passages that do not reference age whatsoever when it comes to learning. This is something that as we think about our minds and how we learn and how we grow, that all of us as Christians can relate to in some way or another. So tonight I'd like to share with you five ideas five things that we see in terms of God's design for us and for our minds. We're going to begin at the very beginning, as I mentioned, in the book of Genesis. So if you'll join me there in Genesis 1, uh, starting in verse 26, we're going to look at this first idea, which I think many of us hopefully recall uh, pretty pretty well, which is that we are designed in his image. And, And you may think to yourself, well, that doesn't necessarily speak to our minds. But let's look at the passage first and talk more about it. So in Genesis 1, verse 26, uh, we pick up there in 26, and it reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And you may be saying to yourself again, well, that doesn't specifically reference our mind, uh, but let's unpack that a little bit more. I think many of us, when we see and, and read this passage, myself included, I think our first instinct, our first thought is created in his image, That's a reference to looks, to our physical appearance and how we are designed uh, physically. And certainly I think that is applicable here. I I think that we see references to why we are shaped and why we are designed physically in the way that we are. Um, But we see more than that as we dig deeper in scripture. And so follow me, if you will, uh, on into the book of Psalm. It says, I praise you. The psalmist here says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Well, notice as we go back to Genesis for just a moment, we don't actually see a reference to the soul of man being created here, but we know that certainly man has a soul. We know that man has a conscious. Uh, We've heard uh, many lessons before in thinking about what separates us from the, the beast. It's not just our dominion over them physically. Because I, I can assure you, there are some beasts on this earth that we cannot physically have dominion over. Uh, we saw uh, last year, my family and I, uh, we were camping down in Gatlinburg and we saw a bear. And I can tell you, if in a physical altercation, myself and that bear, I do not have dominion over him. Um, if it was purely a physical matter, but rather our minds, our soul, uh, our intellect, our ability to understand, that helps us to have dominion Uh, that God designed here from the beginning so we know that that's part of it but dig even deeper we're going to skip over to the New Testament here for a second and see a parallel passage to this it says for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them this one struck me as I was preparing for this lesson as I was studying this and, and really thinking about that we should walk in them and what does that mean, to walk in these good works, to walk with Christ? Well, as we read about and learn about Christ's teaching, we know that it requires a, a level of intellect. It requires a level of understanding, right? Now, it doesn't require you to have the, the highest IQ that was ever recorded in the history of man to be a Christian. That's, that's not what we're saying here. But it does require thought and study and understanding and and really looking at and thinking about scriptures and finding connections to scriptures that we can use in our own life, which is ultimately what we use our minds for. And so if we conclude from some of these passages, and certainly we'll get into some more here momentarily, that to walk with God, it takes more than just our physical appearance that he blessed us with. It was a design that also included our conscience, our hearts, our souls, Uh, and our minds in order to think and understand his will, which is what we're going to get into here as well. So point two, if you're following along here in the scripture or following along in the outline, uh, we're going to look at a few more uh, passages here that speak to this idea. But not only did he just give us a mind, right, and say figure out what to do with it, he gives us a, a host of scripture throughout Old and New Testament to really help us think about what to do with this mind. And I love these next few verses here because I think so often we preoccupy ourselves in this world with our physical health or our emotional health, but yet our, our mental health and really what we're doing with our mind uh, should be something that we prioritize as well. And, and God speaks to this in a lot of ways uh, in the Old and New Testaments. I'll, I'll draw your attention to First Peter as we get started with this. And First Peter uh, chapter two, First Peter chapter two. Uh, Beginning there in verse one, it says, so put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up. I want to pause there for just a moment. We'll finish that in just a second. But that you may grow up. And this passage here is really referencing that there is an evolution process that is expected of us as humans, as Christians, that we evolve past our basic understanding of his word, past the ability to simply read his word, but to truly be able to use it and apply it. And that's really what's referencing here as we finish out that thought that you may grow up into salvation, levels, steps that we take to grow into our salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Similar passage or similar reference can be found in 2 Peter. Uh, As we move into 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, just a few pages there uh, removed, says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. You know, I think so oftentimes uh, the the larger world, the, the world outside these walls, the world outside the body of Christ, thinks of things like salvation, thinks of baptism, thinks of repentance as these singular processes that take place once and then ultimately we have inherited life in the kingdom. And yet we see multiple times, I'll show a a few more passages here as well, where it's a growth process. Learning is involved and, and really... This speaks volumes to why we have Bible studies. This speaks volumes to why Sunday evenings and and Wednesday evenings and why we have summer series and so many of the other tools and resources. It's because we're called to learn and grow. And and that's not just something that we should do if we have the time. It's something that scripturally here we're commanded to do. I think one of the things that, that most inspires me is that jesus himself demonstrated that our minds were equipped to learn and grow and this one here i I spent a lot of time studying uh some of these passages and we'll start in luke 2 and this one i'll encourage you to turn to if you you have your bible with me this is a bit longer here and i want to dig a little deeper into this and the the font up there may be a little small for some and so uh, luke 2 we're going to pick up in verse 39 I don't know if you're anything like me, while you're turning there, I I will tell you, I have so many questions um, about Jesus's life prior to his preaching, prior to his ministry. I have so many questions about what Jesus would have been like as a teenager, what he might have been like as a younger adult. Uh, And we see a little bit of that. We see a glimpse of that here in Luke 2, picking up in verse 39. It's referencing Jesus and his family here. And it says, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, and as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His journey, but they... behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. Pause there. You parents, particularly those of us with younger children, imagine a day's journey you've gone, and, and you are now turning back to think, I've lost my child. I, I'm not sure where my child is at this moment. That's what's going through the parents' here mind as Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem. So it says, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, you can imagine the fear of of Mary at this point and the, the things that might be running through her mind. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And, and that, that alone can, can pause us. We can see several things here uh, in this first half, and I'm going to turn to the, the second half of this in just a moment. But we see that Jesus is listening. He's asking questions. He's learning. And, and I've, I've struggled with this for, for a while because Jesus is the word. He knows the word. And, and yet he's modeling for us what he expects, what he expects to see, studying scripture, asking questions, attending services, This was something that Jesus did. This was something that Jesus not only asked of us, as we'll see later on in the New Testament, this is something that he himself did, as he learned his father's will, and he learned from the scriptures and studying what the word of God has revealed. And as we move a little bit later into that same uh, passages there, uh, picking back up in 48, it says, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Those last two uh, verses there in particular, I relate to on on a lot of levels. Number one, as a parent, you find yourself treasuring a lot of those moments that everybody tells you, you know, you'll you'll look back fondly at those days or or don't blink and you'll miss them. Uh, And I have found those words to be true in a lot of ways, but I've also found that I have to be very intentional about making sure to to treasure the moments that I have, to to, to enjoy those times. And I think that's what Mary uh, is doing here, and Jesus is... Uh, Mother is really thinking about what she is seeing, right? What she is understanding uh, and what's unfolding in front of her. Uh, But in that last verse in particular, there says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. Paraphrased, Jesus learned. Jesus grew. Jesus was continuing to advance his understanding of the gospel and of the scriptures. And we're going to see that here uh, in a more uh, modern sense with our next slide. So if you do have that handout, right in the middle of your handout, you see a big pyramid. Now, I will tell you up front, this is not uh, the terminology or, or uh, figure that you will find in scripture, but it's something that's much more, in the, scri- in the grand scheme of the, the scripture, is much more modern or relevant. Uh, for some of us who are a bit younger, it's uh, a bit dated even at this point. This is Bloom's taxonomy. For those of you who are familiar with the, the educational uh, landscape or you know a teacher in your life or... Uh, you just happen to to be interested in learning as I am and and others are you may recognize this or you may remember this um, uh, vocabulary but Bloom's taxonomy of learning is a a tool or framework that educators have used for decades to really try to quantify and understand the different levels to learning and and I want to really spend some time just briefly talking about uh, why this relates so much to us even as Christians and even the fact that that God really describes a lot of this well before Bloom did uh, in a modern societal context. Uh, The first thing I want to just mention on this is that to increase in wisdom and grow our minds, we must be willing to extend or develop our levels of learning. And so I want to start there at the very bottom of that pyramid for just a moment. And if you think about how we design our Bible classes, and and I'm, I'm fascinated by this as one who has kids now in three different levels of Bible classes beginning with the infants, I've got uh, one in the three and four year old class uh, and one getting ready to move uh, soon into the first and second grade class. And so I see personally, um, but also uh, am fascinated in general by the different levels of learning that occurs in our journey as Christians, that occurs in our journey uh, in life. And if you've ever popped your head in or or maybe just walked by and you, you listen to a three and four year old class, some of the things you may find, and you, you, those of you who teach in the three- and four-year-old uh, classes can speak to it better than I can, you may find that there are quite a bit of memorization, remembering things, right? This is why we create songs about the books of the Bible. This is why we create uh, different rhymes and different ways to help us remember these things, these foundations, because without some level of understanding and a remembering of certain facts and information it's very hard to progress through these latter stages of learning. So as you go up the list and you think about explain or understanding rather, you know, how do you understand, for instance, the flood and Noah's Ark without knowing what an ark is and without knowing the animals that went on it and not without knowing kind of what exactly a flood consists of. And so remembering these details allows us to understand what happened, which is it allows us to understand and apply the lessons from the Old Testament and the New in the lives that we live to this day. And, and I will tell you, as we go up this list, as we move up this pyramid, I fear, personally, and, and, and just in my conversation with brothers, you know, really across uh, different congregations, but I fear a lot of Christians, we start to phase out in these later stages, this apply, these analyze stages. We, yeah, we know the, good, the basics, right? Yeah, we can tell you, uh, John 3:16 yeah we can tell you when and, and how the crucifixion happened. we can tell you those basic uh, we understand those things and we can maybe even apply what that that crucifixion hopefully we can apply what that crucifixion means to us today All right those, those levels of learning but as we move on up the list there and as we get to the pinnacle of learning let me ask you have you ever taught a Bible class have you ever taught a st- study a specific study on a, a particular topic if you've ever had to create a lesson plan, something similar to what is up here right now in front of you, I will tell you that you find yourself learning as much if not more than anybody else that you're talking to. And I was sharing this with Roger today or a couple of days ago. So when I when I preach, when I get up here and do these lessons, there's only once every couple of uh, months, right? And so I only do it a couple times a year, um, but every time I do it, I find myself deeper in study than I am on almost any other occasion, right? And, and, and I think there's a, a power to that and it's not, because I want to do a great job for you all. I certainly do. I want you to learn something. But when you get into that later stages of creation, you're, you're really trying to figure out how do I make sense of this topic and this idea and pull scripture into it in a way that's coherent, you find yourself learning at one of the highest levels that humans can learn at. It's a really, really powerful concept, and it's one that I hope we all have a chance to participate in. And so even if you're not in a position where you want to stand or can stand up here and teach a lesson or you want to teach a a Bible school class, uh, I'd encourage you to to create a study of your own. Find a topic that is of interest or is that of need to you and, and build a lesson plan and try to really create something because it's one of the highest levels of learning that man has defined. And one of the things that I have seen as I've gone through this study is that God actually describes so many of these levels long before man ever thought to. And, and I, I was mentioning that as well uh, in preparation for this a couple of days ago. So oftentimes it seems, and I, again, I work in higher education, I work in academia, and the things that we find right, or research or discover and new uh, study or new publication of some kind, often, depending if you know on where to look and how to look, you will find those same concepts described in the Bible 2,000 years before man ever thought to put it into writing. And so we think about God, we think about his plan for us. One of the things that we see here is that he has planned for us to learn and to grow in our learning for many, many years, uh, and and since really the creation of man. And so as we think about this, one thing I just want to point out If we're not reaching these higher levels, one of the things that we may need to be aware of is that the lack of growth may indicate an increase of problems, spiritual problems, problems in our lives. And and I point you to Hebrews for this, in particular, Hebrews 5, uh, verses 12 through 14. Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 14, the Hebrew writer there says, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers. Pause there for a second. How many of us can, can probably put ourselves in that category? We know enough, right? We have learned, we've gotten to the point where we ought to be teachers. We ought to be sharing this word with other people. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature. I believe Roger mentioned that term this morning in a, a Bible school or a Bible class this morning. Uh, mature. What does that really mean? Well, it's not a a reference necessarily to age. It's not a reference necessarily to our time on this earth. It's a reference to our understanding, to our growth, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. There's a a host of passages, and probably I could have saved you some turning back and forth had I just built a lesson around the book of Proverbs on this, Uh, and we're just going to quickly touch on a few of these I'd encourage you uh, as you get time to go really take a look, a a longer look at the book of Proverbs for this subject. Because I think this book does a great job of helping us understand why and how we're supposed to be committed to learning and to growing. Proverbs, beginning of Proverbs 1 verse 5 says, let the wise hear an increase in learning and the one who understands obtain guidance. I'm gonna go pretty quickly here because there's several really important ideas Uh, But just a few verses later, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Notice beginning of knowledge. It sounds like there's levels, right? It sounds like the proverb writer there is really telling us there's steps to this, right? And fearing the Lord, knowing that wisdom, ultimate wisdom comes from God, uh, is the first step of that. And really understanding the journey that that will set us down. Proverbs 9, verse 9 Give instructions to a wise man and he will still be right wiser, but teach a right righteous man and he will increase in learning. Similar concepts are seen later uh, in, in Proverbs ten seventeen. whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life and he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Uh, Proverbs fifteen five. a fool despises his father's instructions, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Lastly, uh, in Proverbs 18, verse 15, uh, this one may be uh, one of my, my favorites, and as an educator, strikes me uh, pretty, pretty hard. Is that an intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So again, the book of Proverbs has much to say on this topic, but for the sake of time, we'll keep moving forward. Um, because what these verses tell us is that God gave us and expects us to learn. But what we haven't addressed yet is learn what? What exactly should we be focusing our efforts on? And that leads us to point three. God designed these minds of ours not just to learn everything and anything about every random fact that there is. Uh, Certainly there are subjects that we specialize in. Certainly there are areas that we begin to grow our knowledge in. Some of us have some very useless knowledge in our minds. i got a lot of sports statistics stored up here that if I ever get invited to a sports trivia game, I'll, I'll finally be able to put that to good use. But until then, just maintains a lot of storage space up here in my mind. That's not what he's asking here in the Bible. That's not what he's saying learn more about. He's saying he's designed these minds to help us learn his will. And where do we see that? Well, a couple of places. Beginning in Romans, uh, I'll turn your attention to Romans 12, verse 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice uh, the verbiage there, so that you may prove what the will of God is. Well, how do you prove something? I'm going to take you all back to maybe a time in your life that you don't want to go to, which was elementary or junior high math. You may have remembered proofs, mathematical proofs, and how you come about proving something is you have to connect evidence. You have to be able to link ideas together to ultimately create an outcome that is indisputable. And when you have a proof of something, you're able to demonstrate without a reasonable doubt that this is the reality of it. And so when you prove what the will of God is, that requires us to understand first and move through those stages of learning what his will is for us in our lives. Jesus also reflects on this, uh, and I, I would love, there's so many scenes, so many moments in the Bible that I would love to just go back and be a fly on the wall for, and this is one of them, uh, just because I can picture it, at least in my mind, how I'd see it unfolding. But from Matthew 22, uh, we see Jesus really address this in his own words uh, when he's being asked by the Pharisees and uh, the Sadducees here. says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, we've all heard, I suspect, this passage a few times in our lives. But one thing that I've never paid a lot of attention to, if I'm being honest, is the very end of verse 37 there, with all of your mind. I think a lot of times when we hear the word love, so love somebody, it's very much an emotional connotation that a lot of us come to mind. We think about loving is an expression. It's something that you do for people, so it may be something that is uh, involved in some way, we we are we give back, but to love someone with your mind. Something that really struck me, and I, and I think it really speaks to, again, this concept that he expects us to commit our minds and our time to learning him and to understanding him. And that's even true for those in this case, like the lawyer, who seemingly was asking this question uh, almost to try to trick Jesus. You, you get this sense, you get the impression that this wasn't a genuine question in the sense that he truly wanted to learn from the Son of God. It was a question that he was trying to to stump Jesus on. In fact, we actually see later on uh, that they they would do this, right? They would try to stump Jesus on different types of questions and put him into situations where he had to try to give almost a trick uh, question, uh, so to say. And Jesus was always very good about recognizing those and seeing those. But even here, I think Jesus is trying to teach this particular lawyer what the true greatest commandment is. And, and there's been a more modern example to this, uh, at least one that I've come across, and I, I imagine maybe many in this room have as well. Uh, it was a book written about, oh, I think close to 30 years ago now, called The Case for Christ. I don't know if any of you've ever read this book or seen this book, um, but the short version of it is, uh, the, the gentleman who wrote it, uh, Lee Strobel, was a journalist, I believe he ended up being an editor for the Chicago Tribune. And Lee was a uh, self-described atheist, did not believe in God, did not think that God existed, and uh, was the husband of a young woman and, I believe, a daughter as well at the time uh, when uh, a member of a a local church, um, not necessarily a church of Christ, but a member of a church uh, approached his family and uh, began to really convince his wife and his daughter that uh, God existed and that God loved them and that God had a plan for them. And Lee, being the investigative journalist that he was, set out to make a case, Not the the title is a bit misleading, uh, set out to make a case that Christ did not exist. And he went through this journey uh, of talking to, and it's based on a real story, he went through this journey of talking to archaeologists, to talking to historians, to all types of people, he went Uh, to Jerusalem himself he went through all this journey trying to to disprove Christ Uh, much like the lawyer I'm sure was was thinking uh, in uh, Matthew there Um, and what his ultimate conclusion was and this is again in a more modern context is that the evidence for Christ is so overwhelming that even he a self-described atheist someone who set out to disprove the existence of our Lord and Savior concluded this Christ must have existed and not only did he exist, he was the son of God, and, and it's just a, a story that even the, the skeptics uh, in this world, God designed them to challenge him. He said, he said look in, find out the truth, and, and I assure you that there will be enough evidence to convince you if your heart is open uh, of, this, of this compelling uh, gospel that has been uh, given to us, and again, we see this in other ways uh, going back to scripture here. Uh, Proverbs 15 talks on this idea, the heart of him has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. Uh, that's a, another verse that uh, could, could be unpacked if, if given the time, but uh, the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. If you spend too much time on really any social media platform or in any other setting, uh, you will find fools in existence who feed on foolishness. Uh, and again, these words are, are really echoing even thousands of years after being written. Point four, which really, I think, gets into the crux of of our minds and why they were designed in the way that they were, is that we were designed to depend on God. Up to this point, we've talked a lot about us, right? How we were designed, how our minds were created, and what we were expected to do with them. But ultimately, we humans, as each and every person in this room should know, are limited in our uh, ultimate uh, understanding of things, And, and that's where we are continuously reliant on God. And so we see this in a couple of places. My favorite, uh, just in terms of of illustrating this, comes from Job. And if you, again, want to turn with me, it's a bit of a longer uh, unpacking that we'll look into for just a moment. Job 38, if you're familiar, recall kind of where we're at in Job in the 38th chapter. This is uh, Job beginning to question God. He started to really, you you get the sense of reach his breaking point. Uh, You get the sense that, that Job is starting to unravel, uh, and and is asking some really tough questions of God, and and God's retort here is described, his response uh, to to Job is is described in part uh, here, beginning in verse 1. It says, The Lord then answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? I don't know about you, but uh, there have been a handful of moments in my life where I've been truly speechless, right? Where I just had nothing to say. I, nothing would have even made sense to say. And I don't know that I've ever, though, quite had a moment like Job had in this moment, right? What do you say to that when when God is asking you these questions in return? It's a a pretty humbling moment, even for Job, who's been humbled quite a bit throughout his journey. Uh, This is a moment where we are reminded without a a hesitation of God's understanding to our own. Take any number of these questions that God presents to Job and, and try to answer them ourselves. Even with the modern advances in technology that we have to this day, I laid the foundations of the earth. Uh, Where were you? Who determined its measurements? You got me, God. I I have no idea. I have no even idea how to start to answer that question or where to even research a question like that. And yet those are the types of things, and I I would imagine that's even lower level things that that God presented Job. He could have gone a whole lot further and a whole lot harder, but it was clear that Job was going to fail this particular test and these particular questions. And it shows us there that God's understanding will always exceed ours, always. There's just not a topic or a subject or an area or an amount of time that we can research and, and explore something uh, and get a better understanding of it than God, right? And, and I find that not only humbling, I find it comforting, uh, and, and knowing that, that there may be answers that I do not have, but God does. God knows them, Right? And I think there's a, a, a real reason for this. There's a real reason why we don't have those answers to, to all the questions that we have. And that's seen there at the top of your screen. It's because we are dependent on him. We need to depend on him. And because of that understanding, and it will always exceed our own. One more verse that really illustrates this is found in uh, Psalm 147. Psalm 147, uh, beginning in verse 2, reads, The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. Notice here, his understanding is beyond measure. And I, I think I tend to think the psalmist is both literal and figurative here, L- meaning we literally cannot measure God's understanding of things. We, we don't have a frame of reference. There's no database big enough. There's no exams hard enough there is nothing that we can create as man that will ultimately get to God's understanding. And that's what the psalmist is really referencing here as he concludes, the Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. (laughs) Lastly, as we start to really think about what this means for us, I think that we need to understand that our dependence on God is not a, a weakness, it's not a limitation. Sometimes we think of dependence and we think of Um, That being some type of shortcoming, right? And and yet here in the context of our relationship with God, it's very much the opposite, right? Uh, In Proverbs, we read about trusting in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. Well, think about those first three points that we made, right? He made us so that we can grow in our understanding, so that we can learn his will and that we can obey. And yet don't put our faith in our understanding, but rather God's understanding of us and his uh, plans for us. We see very similarly Jeremiah uh, in verse t- or chapter 29, uh, verse 11 says, for I know the plans I have had for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Lastly, back to Proverbs, we see many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You know, I think about this particular uh, point, and uh, again, as an academic One of the things that I pride myself on is just knowing things, right? learning things, uh, understanding things, not necessarily all things, but having some familiarity with what uh, may be going on or uh, about a particular topic, and yet this is an incredibly humbling thing to read about right? because there's just so many things that we will never know. Each and every person in this room has a uh, date that we will ultimately leave this earth, and yet not a single one of us knows what that date is. And it's a humbling thing. It's a humbling thing to, to know that that exists. It will happen, that our time will come. God knows the exact date. He knows the exact hour. He knows the exact minute. And yet we rely on him. We depend on him, not from reluctance, but from trust. Right? And that's what we see kind of uh, a thread there tied from uh, Providence to Jeremiah to so many other places, is that our dependence on him is not because we have to or because we, we must It's because we want to trust in God. We we are asked to trust in God. And it's a, a, a willful relationship. He will not force us or anyone to join him, to be with him. And yet he asks to trust him. And that's something that can be, again, incredibly humbling as well. Our last point here tonight, as we wind down our time and as we think about really pulling all this together and what to do with this information, God designed our minds to obey, to share, and to defend. I know that's a, maybe that's a preacher trick, Roger, but it's also an academic trick. We've piled in three points into one point there. Um, but the reality is I see a lot of connections between these three things. To obey, to share, and defend. It's, it's really a, a speaking and a calling to the gospel. And so let's talk a little bit more about this for just a moment here. And, and I really think First Peter, First uh, and Second Peter, uh, speak to this in a lot of different ways. Uh, but really First Peter, uh, beginning in chapter three, It says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I draw your attention quickly to that make defense. If you've ever seen any law shows or if you've ever been in a courtroom You know, when you have to give a defense to something, you better have done your research, right? You better have the evidence, you better have the witnesses, you better have the the detail. And that's really what he's saying. You better have an understanding of the gospel so that you can make a defense of it. So that when one asks you, why do you have the hope that you have, you can give a definitive answer to it. We see this in a couple of other places. I particularly like uh, uh, letters to Timothy uh, in addressing both Timothy's youth but also uh, how he should be approaching others. Uh, and in particular, 2 Timothy, uh, he mentions here uh, to uh, Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That concept of rightly handling the word of truth, that was on my mind yesterday uh, for sure. I took my two uh, boys, uh, ages five and three, to a Lego convention over in Louisville my three-year-old, who is particularly known uh, to be a little bit on the rambunctious side, or at least on the uh, wilder side in terms of his um, uh, effect on the environment around him, before I could even realize where he had gone or what he had done, uh, he was making his way over to a 10,000-piece Lego sculpture and was uh, set on touching it. And I'm pretty sure for a moment my heart might have stopped, or at least I stopped breathing momentarily, Because I was convinced that within moments of arriving, we were going to be kindly escorted out of the building after my three-year-old broke a 10,000-piece Lego set. Thankfully, he did not, um, but really thinking about how do you handle something that delicately, right? And all of us have handled something of delicacy, right? Something that we didn't want to break, we didn't want to drop. And I think that same concept, that idea of being thoughtful in how we handle the word of God, rightfully handling it, requires us to first and, of course, know what the will of God is in the word of truth. We see a, a similar thought uh, expressed in First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 16, says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. One thing that I've always admired, uh, about Christians and brothers and sisters in the Church of Christ, that we never just take things for granted. We don't just allow Roger or Jason or anybody else to just walk up here and tell us whatever they want. We have Bibles in front of us, we have questions to ask. These are indicators of Christians who are not just listening and kind of being talked at. they're indicators of Christians who are learning and are growing and are developing in their faith. Uh, and I think that's exactly what Christ is is, is preaching and what uh, what uh, God is seeking. For us. And, and as we really try to summarize that, we see as our learning in, in, of God's Word grows, so does our ability to share it with others. Um, I know for myself as a relatively younger, but growing older by the day Christian, um, I think my, my early fears of, of talking to others about God and talking to others about Christ was that I just didn't know enough. Right? And I think some of us, many of us, can probably relate. Uh, to that fear and, and, and worrying that we will do more damage than good and, and yet um, we see here in the, in the gospel that really as we grow in our understanding we grow in our ability as well to share it and I think that is certainly something uh, that can be powerful uh, from the gospel I know I'm, I'm winding down on my time here but there's just a, a few ideas I want to conclude with one of which is properly captured in 2nd Timothy uh, and I'll just draw your attention here to the end uh, of 2nd Timothy 1 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 12, uh, looking there at the later section, I'm going to pick up probably around uh, verse uh, 11 there. It says, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. A couple words that stand out there uh, from Paul is that uh, I know. Well, how do you know? Know is a a pretty convinced word. If I know something, if I know it's going to rain, I'm going to bring an umbrella. Well, I don't know. So I didn't bring an umbrella. And so we're going to risk it. And there's always that uncertainty that man brings uh, to almost any situation. Paul says, not the case with the gospel. He says, I know what I have believed. And I am convinced. And even doubling down, right? Saying, not only do I know it, I'm convinced of it. It's not going to change in my mind that Christ Jesus died for our sins, that God had a plan for salvation, and that through his son, he gave that plan for salvation to the world. He says, I know it, and I'm convinced of it, and it was entrusted to me to share. And not only is it entrusted to him, it's entrusted to all of us. Uh, we're going to talk uh, just more about that at the very end here. But as we think about the conclusion of all this, and, and I think about, again, my, my identity as an academic and my identity as a Christian, those are things that I, I think about and contemplate often. There's no test that, that Christianity have here on this earth, that Christians have on this earth. Um, The the ultimate test comes after our life on this earth. You know, we can take Bible quizzes, we can uh, have different types of study sheets, and and those are important things to have. But what will ultimately be evaluated on is did we uphold the will of God? Did we learn the will of God? And did we commit to serving him after learning that will, after being baptized and brought into the body of Christ? And so one thing that, that really stands out to me after completing and studying for this for the last several weeks, uh, and this actually just came up uh, just moments before I, I came on stage, is that the Bible really never gives us at any point an age or a limit to our learning. It never says once you've reached here, once you are an elder, stop reading. You don't, you've got it at that point. You're, you're good. doesn't say that. Once you start preaching, that's it. You're, you, you've made it. You don't have to, to learn anymore. I, I would say it's the opposite in that case. But really, what the Bible teaches us is that we should be lifelong learners, ones who are constantly seeking to better understand our God. And really, what this lesson tried to help capture was that we are designed to not only reflect His image, but to learn and to grow, to understand and to do His will, to depend on Him, and to ultimately obey and share the gospel and to share our understanding of His Word and the the Word itself with all the world. And so, that's God's design for our minds. And uh, I hope that it was time tonight that you were able to uh, get something out of. I hope it was time that you were able to reflect and think about your own journey and your own learning, uh, not just in terms of your life and how you've committed yourself uh, to education or to anything outside of these, these walls or to outside of Christianity, but how we've applied our learning, our commitment to learning to uh, God's word. And I think that's a really important thing. I'll leave you with one other conversation that I had recently. Uh, and I'll show you a, an example, hopefully, that illustrates this. So this is my own personal Bible here. And Brother Stewart, actually, a few weeks ago, um, and I, Roger, I don't think I ever even told you this. He said, you know, Roger talks about academics a lot up there. He goes, is it true? Is it true about all the stuff he says about uh, higher education and how it's not a, a good place for Christians right now? There's a lot of challenges for Christians. And I said, well, yeah, there's certainly a lot of challenges that being in higher education, being an academic, being surrounded by people who uh, on paper and in, on an earthly sense, have a lot of credentials, have a lot of um, uh, intelligence, have a lot to, to offer uh, in various ways, uh, that can feel a little overwhelming at times when, when they are convinced, many of them, uh, that Christianity or that God himself does not exist and that uh, we spend a lot of our time uh, worshiping and, and serving a God and, and what's ultimately the point. And uh, I, I, I've never actually shared the story of this Bible, but I'll share it briefly with you all. So at the bottom of this Bible, I know you can't really see it, but I'll show anybody who's interested. Um, At the bottom of this Bible has my name, Zachary Goldman, and then it has uh, the three letters that I earned at the conclusion of my time in graduate school, PhD. And if I got that for myself, that'd be a little weird. Um, So I'm not claiming that I did. But I actually, it was a gift given to me um, by a gentleman when I was in grad school. It was really when I struggled the most with that identity. A lot, of my, a lot of my colleagues around me, a lot of people around me did not attend church, um, did not um, belong to a, a congregation of any kind, um, and were not faithful Christians. And um, I remember, uh, and, and this was also my first year out there, uh, I did not even have my wife with me, so we weren't married yet. So it was a very lonely time. It was a time where I felt um, pretty abandoned in a lot of ways. And I remember a gentleman who was a professor at uh, the institution that I was at. Um, I remember cu- walking into a services one morning and seeing him there, and I'd recognized him from the university, and we began talking about that very question, about what's it like to be an academic, to be a Christian, um, to, to, to try to serve God's will uh, in this livelihood and in this work, and uh, he shared with me something that I'll always remember and that I share with you now uh, is that, you know, it doesn't take a whole community of people to make you feel like you belong. It, it really takes one person to make you feel like you belong. He said, and even if you look around in academia and you see no other person who has, um, who, who says or identifies as a Christian or who goes to a church of Christ, he says, you know, there was one person who was smarter than all these academics, and he lived the life that God wanted. He lived the New Testament life. He lived the Old Testament. He lived for us, and he ultimately died for us. And he said, and that was Jesus. He said, Jesus was smarter than any academic you'll ever meet. He studied more. He knew more. He understood more. And he said that uh, don't let anybody tell you that you can't be smart or committed to learning and also still be a Christian. He said, really, Christians should all be committed to learning. And as I look around this room, think about all the hours and the the days and the weeks and the months that so many of the people in this congregation have poured into studying God's will. You all have Ph.D. equivalency, if not more than, in the word of God. And that's something that um, hopefully we are proud of, hopefully that we share Hopefully that doesn't just uh, go away with us, but we pass that knowledge on, we pass that understanding on to the next generation. And so if you are in a position tonight where you do not have the, the favor of God, the blessings of God, and the forgiveness of God through his son, Christ Jesus, know that he was committed to learning about you. He knew everything there is to know about you. And he knew the sins that you had committed and he went to that cross anyways. He knew what exactly was gonna happen. He knew the time that was going to happen. He knew all the the pain he was going to suffer. And yet he followed through with the plan of God because he cared that much about each and every one of us and the eternal life that we seek to have. And so if you are in need tonight of the call for God, if you are in need of of being baptized and being immersed in the waters to be forgiven for your sins, uh, that opportunity is available for you this evening. If you're someone, though, who has just fallen off your journey in any way, particularly you have stopped your journey of learning, you, you've stopped learning about the Word of God, you stopped committing to the Word of God, that call is available for you as well. And it's an opportunity to come forward and to really seek not just forgiveness, but support. Support of a bunch of community members who look and think and act much like you and are all seeking the same goal of heaven and eternal life. So if you're subject to the call tonight, please let it be known as we stand and sing this song.